0: And to open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. Last message in our little mini series Christmas Notes from Christmas Carols. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. And this is the Word of God The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And join me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we're so glad this morning that we can say that. That, Father, the calendar changes, but your word does not. And that it's true today and that it's certain today as it was when you spoke these words, uh, Father, nearly three months ago. So, Father, take now your word and by your Spirit apply the truths here to the way we think, the way we live, Father, to the joy that we experience day by day. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1785, Friedrich Schiller wrote a poem about the the wonders of creation and humanity, and he titled it To Joy. Uh, It's a rather lengthy poem, it has questionable theology in it. He does acknowledge there's a creator. Uh, to be sure. But it's what served as inspiration for Ludwig von Beethoven's uh, final symphony, number 9 in D minor. Beethoven had made plans to set this poem to music as far back as 1793, when he was just 22. When he finished it, he considered it one of his great masterpieces. He officially started work on it in 1818, took six years to complete, and it's the only symphony Uh, he ever had words written to accompany part of the songs. And near the end, there's a chorale uh, which has become known by the name Ode to Joy, uh, which incorporates parts of Schiller's poem as edited by Beethoven with its focus on the joy of life. Uh, Beethoven himself participated in directing uh, the uh, the symphony's premiere in 1824. He was totally deaf at the time. Uh, It was his first time on stage in 12 years. When it was over, there were an unprecedented five standing ovations. Um, A king always received a maximum of three, and the police actually stopped it after five. Uh, And the ovations were accompanied, though, by by handkerchiefs and hats in the air and hands raised so that uh, Beethoven, who could not hear the applause, would know of the ovation. Uh, It left him deeply moved. In reality, it was the, the perfect storm, if you will, of a great composer who creates great music, understanding God's laws of, of music, such as uh, rhythm, harmony, melody, uh, and he writes a joyful symphony, performed by a, a, a joyful symphony, chorus, sung by a chorus, and, and listened to by a knowledgeable audience. In reality, music expresses the joy of life especially when the subject of that music is joy itself. Music is one of God's great gifts that allowed us as human beings to express joy. It's part of the reason we love Christmas carols so much. So this chorale is still sung today, and we usually call it Ode to Joy. We sang just two stanzas because the rest of the ones that are usually sung, let's just call them theologically, not what we would ever sing. Um, But anyway, not biblically accurate. Um, But the tune is is recognized around the world. In fact, the tune itself is the European Union's anthem without any words to it. Um, And So joy is the theme that Isaac Watts also seized on from Psalm 98 when he wrote Joy to the World. Remember, he wrote it for Easter. Uh, And joy is also the theme here in Isaiah 35. It's real joy based on the truth of God's Word. And Isaiah 35 is, is looking forward to an improbable journey home. Isaiah is predicting the return of God's people from exile, though they've not even taken into exile. The journey back will require them to travel across the vast deserts to, uh, back toward devastated Jerusalem that lies in ruins. And so while they're there sitting in Babylon, uh, there's not going to be a lot of reason for joy. The people will not be home. So Psalm 137 expresses their distress. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So some today might say there's not a lot of reason for joy, unless you find joy in missed field goals. Um, But anyway... um, Inflation's you know rampant. Um, COVID's still with us, perhaps it's growing. stock market's down, inflation's up, there's political squabbling. We have health problems, concerns of, in our own midst of church family. And there's a church body what affects some of us affects all of us. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. And Isaiah he's writing about uh, the future, but in his day, people face similar issues. I mean, the land's been devastated for a period of years by the invading Assyrians. The northern kingdom's already been taken into exile. Soon, the Assyrian army is going to surround Jerusalem. It's just going to be a matter of time until they'll fall and cease to exist. In fact, it'll be about a hundred years. Their economy's a wreck. Every family has lost somebody in the war. And usually, when a conquered uh, army conquers your land they would use salt to to destroy the fertility of the land and results in starvation and hunger so given all that beethoven and watts want us to sing for joy And isaiah wants to talk about joy and we want to talk about joy an ode to joy so why let's go to the text and see first we sing about joy because of the miracle that brings joy Look at verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land it shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. I say, Isaiah is describing a desert scene which, against all odds, changes. Now, why? Well, it tells us because God's displaying His glory and His majesty. Uh, to understand really how God promises to bless His people, we need to, to understand the contrast. Go back to Isaiah 34. Turn back the page. Uh, and we, we read about God's judgment on Edom. Pick it up in verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance... A day of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Nine days shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it, and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there's no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. See, what makes Isaiah 35 all the more remarkable is against all odds, God changes the desert from a, a foreboding place of danger and despair into a garden. God changes everything. God's glory is on display as, as the flowers bloom and, and dominate the landscape. And look at the changes. says the glory of Lebanon. Lebanon has, has trees, that, cedar trees that grow 120 feet tall, 30, 40 feet in diameter. And they're going to be in the desert. Uh, the snow caps of, of Mount Carmel would melt and would fill the plains of Sharon below, making it a very rich farming area. That's what the desert's going to be like. So we remember the Chronicles of Narnia, that that when the children are Narnia, it's it's winter. Uh, It's been winter for years. It's cold, and it's dark, and it's damp. But when Aslan, representing Jesus, comes, so does spring. Narnia comes back to life. It's like watching The Wizard of Oz. It's all black and white, and then Dorothy lands in Oz. And what, what suddenly happens to your, your TV if you, have a, if you had a color TV in those days? We didn't. I didn't know it changed. turns out it did. Uh, but suddenly you have a burst of color uh, everywhere. Uh, this is the joy that God promises. Nature's rejoicing and singing. So the verbs grab our attention as, as they repeat the same ideas over and over again. There's a great day of, uh, of change coming that causes us to shout for joy. So because of that, Isaiah uh, tells us about a ministry that joy demands. Verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Save those of an anxious heart. Be strong. Fear not. You know, because we can know real joy. Because as God's people, we can sing, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Or we can sing, I have the joy, 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 where? Good, all right. The reality is that, that God gives us ministry to do. We are to strengthen the weak hands. We're to, to make firm the feeble knees. In other words, we're to comfort those in fear. We're to encourage those who are exhausted. Encourage those people who have Anxious hearts. We're to strengthen those who are are literally tottering and about to fall. So, all of us know people who are struggling. Some of us are struggling for the reasons we listed before the economy, or job problems, or health issues, or, or conflict on the job, or at home, or in the neighborhood. And here's the deal we should not get so wrapped up in our own problems that we all have and concerns. That we miss the cries of the people who are around us, uh, especially the silent cries. Steve May points out, he says, You do not have to be a spiritual giant to give strength to others. You just have to care. You have to care enough to be willing to say, I think this is an area where you need some strength. Let me help you. And if we do that, the Bible makes some amazing promises. One is in, in Proverbs eleven twenty five. Now, this is from the NIV. He who refreshes him, others will himself be refreshed. In other words, do you want to experience joy? Well, look for opportunities to strengthen those who are weak. Look for opportunities to give encouragement. Share words of comfort and joy. And especially the message that results in joy. Look at The last part of verse 4, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. So we sing, joy of the world, Lord has come. Let earth receive His King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And that's the message. Because when He comes, what will He do? Uh, He'll bring judgment on everyone who's rejected Him. But for those who believe in Jesus Christ, He will save us. We're going to be seeing how this works out as we go back to Revelation next Sunday. Now let's affirm that, that as Jesus came that first time and saved us by, by taking our place on the cross, dying there for our sins, and for all, that, that all who place their trust in Jesus have the joy of knowing that we have eternal life. That's the message of hope we give to the feeble, the unsteady, those who have anxious hearts, to those who find themselves at the very end of their rope. There's a great story about Alexander Sholzlitsyn, the Russian writer who spent years in the Siberian prison work camp. And at one point, he had become extremely discouraged, um, and he decided to give up his life. And his plan was this. He would just stop working in the field, and he would lean on his shovel, and the guards would come and beat him to death. So that was his plan. Uh, and uh, so the day when he, was, he, he, he did it, he, he stopped. And the prisoner beside him saw that he'd stopped, and he took his shovel, and he reached over, and at Solzhenitsyn's feet, he, he drew a cross. And they quickly erased it before the guards could see it. And Solzhenitsyn later said that his entire being was energized by that little reminder of hope and courage, that we have in Christ because of the cross. And he found the strength to continue because a fellow believer cared enough to risk his life, to remind him of the hope we have because of the cross. So that leads us to the manifestation that displays joy when people do believe the message. Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So talk about a a radical change. Isaiah speaks of the blind, the lame, uh, the deaf. Uh, Those unable to talk, and now what? They hear, and they see, and they walk, and they talk. Uh, Radical change takes place in the barren land as a a desert's filled with streams. You know that sand that that burns your feet at the beach when you walk across it? It's covered with a a cool pool of water. No more burning feet. No longer do jackals have the run of things. Those are coyote-like hunters. Um, scavengers, and they're gone. It's a brand new day for the desert. And so God does His work sometimes in very surprising places, in very unexpected places. Very often where sin is seemingly triumphed, God will step in and display His glory. And so at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist is, is excited, he's encouraged, he's emboldened, And he continues to brazenly confront Herod about his sin. Finally, Herod's had enough. And what's he do? He throws John in prison. And the longer John stays in prison, the more he struggles. As one writer puts it this way, John's thinking that there's Jesus and he's spending lots of time with misfits and spiritual losers. He's whining and dining with sinners but he spent way too little time chopping down the rotten wood that that John had singled out for destruction. Nothing seemed to change. The Pharisees still control the popular piety, and the Sadducees still control access to the temple. Uh, And Jesus is off do-gooding in the hills of Galilee. And to top it off, Herod, the very embodiment of all that's wrong in Israel, is still on the throne, and he, John, is in jail. And so he's thinking, you know, there's some time for some Messiahship here. Come on. So he sends the messengers to Jesus and says, you know, are you really the Messiah? Or do we need to look for another? And Jesus responds with these words from Isaiah. He says, John, this is it. I mean, the kingdoms come, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. But see, it's not what Jesus says that sends John the message. It's what Jesus does not say. See, Jesus leaves out some very important part of this passage from Isaiah. He does not mention, your God will come with vengeance. Vengeance. But you see, that, that was the language that got John excited. Um, and so what's Jesus doing? He's pointing out to John as well as his own disciples, uh, and uh, it, it, to them, and sometimes we as well, something that we find hard to understand. So Jesus gives a lesson here prophetic fulfillment. The day of the Lord does not fully come with that first coming of Messiah. Like they all expected. Already with Jesus' first coming, the day of good news has come. The day of healing has come. The day of mercy, the day of the cross. But not yet. That final day of judgment. That day of vengeance. When all the wrongs of this world will be righted. And God's justice will triumph. See, John wants it all to happen now. But God's being compassionate and merciful. He's holding back that final judgment until the gospel is proclaimed to all the peoples of the nations of the earth. And that's when Jesus says the end will come. It's no wonder John is confused. He did not realize how God would fulfill his promises in his own time and his own way. So that's why Jesus sends his reply to John with a message for all who are tempted to wonder sometimes whether Jesus is really the one. Blessed is the one who's not uh, offended by me. That word offended means to to stumble over, uh, to trip over. John was tripping over God's unexpected ways. And friends, when we struggle with God's timing, when we struggle with God's ways, and we all do, We need to keep our focus on God's promises. As an aside, we often think and talk about salvation and redemption as concerning only humans. But Isaiah reminds us that creation too participates in the glorious results of Christ's work on the cross. If only the radical environmentalists of our world would see that what they're really looking for is Jesus. All right, that's the answer. uh, it's, uh, it's not uh, well I won't go into all that um, but, but creation will be liberated from sin and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God Christ's work is going to have a cosmic effect the desert's going to blossom that's Paul's point in Romans 8 the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of the Lord so if it looks around, you look around and you see that the desert's not yet blooming, let me assure you it will. The best is yet to be. Because now the stage is set for the mobilization that comes with joy. Pick it up in verse 8. And the highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they should not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness, and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. There are two great word pictures here. One is the building of a highway. Uh, As the people anticipated their long journey back across the deserts to Jerusalem, uh, that was going to be a long trip. But God says to make it easy for them to go to a highway that you can travel across. But the second part of the illustration is God's building that highway so that they can go home. Go home. You see, there in Babylon, they'll not just be able to click their ruby slippers and say, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, and find themselves back in Jerusalem. No, it's a journey they'll go on. And it's a journey for us. We're on a spiritual journey that ultimately ends up in the new Jerusalem. And notice it's a holy highway. Now, just walking on that highway does not make people Holy. Rather, we're allowed to walk on that highway because we've been made holy in God's sight. When our trust is in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we're holy. We're set apart. And so you can have that as HOV lanes out on that interstate. Here's a whole HOV highway. Holiness-occupied vehicles, folks. All right? Uh, and, and this calls us then to seek... To live what we are. We want to seek to live the way God sees us. We want to live holy lives on our journey home because we're made holy. And that's what grace does for us. And it's a safe journey. In those days, the wild animals and robbers made travel treacherous. Today, well, deer make travel treacherous around here to be sure. Um, uh, Accidents and those things. Uh, But no one Nothing can remove us from the highway of holiness that leads us to the new Jerusalem. Rather, we can sing on our way. Joy crowns our heads. Gladness and joy overtake us as life's sorrows and signs begin to fade away. Keep that last part in mind. We're homeward bound. But we're not home yet. So what if we're not experiencing those streams in the desert right now? You remember what Hebrews 12 says about Jesus, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Joy is set before us. And as Jesus endured the cross, by fixing His eyes on the joy set before Him, the writer of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Perhaps Vivian Green's quote will help us. Life is... Is not about waiting for the storm to pass. Life is learning to dance in the rain. So what about us? You know, Beethoven brought us great joy through music. And I've told you before, but I'm going to tell you again. Vincent van Gogh has brought us joy through art. You now, van Gogh was a very complicated, troubled man. His father and his grandfather, they were reformed pastors... Uh, uh, by the time he finally decided to become an artist at age twenty-seven, Van Gogh had had two unsuitable and unhappy romances. He had worked unsuccessfully as a clerk in a bookstore. He'd failed as an art salesman and as a preacher in a very dreary mining district there in Belgium. He was let go for being overzealous as a pastor, whatever that looked like. Uh, and during his life, you know, his paintings were not acclaimed. He only sold one painting during his whole lifetime. Uh, And ultimately, we know Van Gogh took his life at the age of 37, suffered from epilepsy uh, and severe depression. Now, that doesn't sound very joyous, does it? Um, So you have to look at his paintings. Uh, And though it seemed he rejected uh, the truth given to him in his Christian home, and he did sink into depression and destruction, by the grace of God, Uh, He began to embrace God's truth again, and his life took on hope. And he shows that hope through his his use of color. Van Gogh was a master of color, and he used yellow when he wanted to express hope and warmth of God's love. Scott McKnight notes this. He writes, in one of his depressive periods, uh, seen in his famous Starry Night, one finds a yellow sun and yellow swirling stars because Van Gogh thought truth was present only in nature. There's a church in this painting that should be the house of truth, but it shows no traces of yellow. But by the time he painted the raising of Lazarus, uh, his life was on the mend. The entire picture is saturated in yellow. And in fact, Van Gogh put his own face on the face of Lazarus to express his hope in the resurrection. Van Gogh wrote this to his brother. It's my fervent prayer and desire that the spirit of my father and grandfather may rest upon me, that I may be given to become a Christian and a Christian laborer, and that my life may resemble more and more their lives. All that I may be shown the way to devote my life more fully to the service of God and the gospel. Uh, Van Gogh's father had given him a Bible. and In 1885, Van Gogh painted that Bible. Um, Now, what page do you suppose the Bible was open to? It was open to Isaiah 53, uh, which describes us the work of Christ on the cross. It's a hope Van Gogh seems to have had. can't be sure, of course, but we can pray that he did or hope that he did. Uh, Sadly, unlike Jesus, he could not see sometimes the joy for the pain. Uh, Despite his artist's vision, He often saw the world only in shades of gray, no sunshine and dark clouds. Friends, we don't want to follow his path to despair, but we want to fix our eyes on the God who brings joy, the God who brings life to the desert, even if at times it means we'll have to dance in the rain. Keep our eyes fixed on the sun, S-O-N, in the year ahead, Uh, always Always remembering the cross. Friends, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we're marching towards the new Jerusalem in 2023. Let's do it with singing. Let's do it with great joy. We sing because Jesus has come. And He's coming again to make the nations prove the glories of His righteousness. The wonders of His love. And let's not stop at five ovations. All right? But let our praise be for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you for the joy you give to us as believers. Father, we live in a a fallen world. Uh, There's much to take away, uh, Father, our joy. Much to uh, make us sad, Father. Much to depress. Uh, Father, much to make us like Van Gogh in... in, uh, his discouragement and depression. Yet, Father, we pray for your help as we march to the new Jerusalem, Father, that you would fill us with joy. Father, because of the cross, because of all your promises, Lord, that you're going to make the desert bloom, that, Father, you've prepared a place for us, Lord, a new Jerusalem, new heavens, and a new earth. Father, where the flowers bloom all the time. Father, your glory is on display all the time, fully, through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, may here day, does he yet know that joy. Father, show them the cross today. Draw them to your love displayed there through your Son, Jesus, we ask. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.